Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS on air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zernio, a nationally known gerontologist, served as chair of the National Council on Aging and is still a member of their board. She serves also as executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation, graduate of Trinity University and University of the Incarnate Word. That would be you. That would be me in very long sentences. We have a great guest coming up. We do have a great guest. Um, We've got Dr. Daniel Potts, and he's going to talk about the impact of allowing someone with Alzheimer's to use the creative side of their brain, which remains intact. You know, he's got a wonderful story about art and Alzheimer's and kind of rethinking the way we work with people with Alzheimer's. And a story about his dad, Lester Potts, who began painting after he developed Alzheimer's. You know, you you forget, who is it, um, Whistler's mother or uh, the artist, you can tell I had... My memory's gone, Uh, but there are some other people that started painting late Late in life, life. and so add Lester to the list. It's pretty cool. We're going to talk with uh, Dr. Potts in a few minutes, but first, uh, the last show, we left off with mapping caregiving and never quite got to that, and I'm curious about it. What does it mean, Carol? Well, this was a very interesting article in Next Avenue, and we will have to have Rajiv Mehta um, on the show to talk about... Um, the Mapping Caregiving. So he's CEO and founder of Atlas of Caregiving. And uh, if he's listening, uh, we thought your article was really interesting. He was a used to be a NASA scientist. Wow. So rocket that's rocket Lots science. Of you know, to apply that to, to caregiving. And so what they've done is really look at the tasks involved in caregiving on a day-to-day basis, really get down into the minutia. How do we change the caregiving experience if we don't really know what's going on uh, with caregivers? And so he has something called caregiver mapping. You take a pencil and paper and you draw stick figures, which we're going to talk to someone who did real art, um, but you don't have to be an artist to do this. Drawing stick figures and arrows, and you create your caregiving ecosystem. So you're looking at me like, what's an ecosystem? What does that mean? What does that mean? So, okay, so this is something that I want you to try not after you listen to our fabulous guest, after you listen to Dr. Potts. So this is something you can try at home. That you can try at home. Um, they do this with caregivers in large groups. So you answer three questions. So the first question is, who do you care for? So that could be your dad, your wife, your mom. So you're going to draw, and it could be your sick cat. It could be a parakeet. It could be your next-door neighbor who broke his leg. So everybody that you are providing care for. So that's number one. Speaking of cats, New York Times study, cats are smarter than dogs. I know. I left that on the printer, but I was so happy, and I knew it. I just want to say I am the crazy cat lady. As the crazy cat lady, I knew that. Okay, so number one is all the things, people that you're caring for, your kids, all your caregiving duties. Number two, now now add to that who else cares for them? So oh. now we're looking at what's the support really like? Do you always feed your cat or does your wife sometimes feed your cat? You know, so you've got the three kids. 
it's 100% Ron. It's, you know, it's Gene to help out a little bit. It would be the other way around. <laughs> yeah. Now, we, we come close to doing 50, a 50, 50. 50. It's probably 60 40. But so now you know your resources, right? Who else cares for them? If they go to adult daycare, um, you know, that's going to count if you have somebody come into the home. But it also could be the next door neighbor who brings dinner, you know, once a week to your dad who doesn't cook. Um, and number three is who cares for you? Who supports Ooh. you? So that's also your resource. So here's the people that you care for, the things, the animals. Here's who else cares for them. And then who is your support circle? And what this usually will show you is either how much more support you have that you th- than you thought or how little support you have. And you really need to get help. But it lays out in black and white your caregiving ecosystem, your little corner of the caregiving world, and kind of helps you um, see it visually. It's one of those things that is so simple to understand, and yet it hasn't been done before. And, you know, when you see it, you're going, oh, that makes so much sense. So leave it to a rocket scientist to figure that out. Proving caregiving is rocket science. It is. Absolutely. Next up, as you take a look at things going on in the world, Fear of flying. Well, the, you know, this is a total non-sequitur to, Which is to okay. the caregiving. But caregivers do fly on airplanes. And I saw this and, and thought, that's me. I'm the person that flies all the time and really hates to fly. And so if you are someone like me who hates to fly and considered a necessary evil, the holidays are not that far away, um, I found a list of six things to help you out. Number one is choose your seat wisely, um, which on Southwest Airlines can be difficult. It can be challenging. Depending on your boarding number. But basically that's do you – do you li- are you more comfortable? I personally have to have a window seat. I really hate sitting on the aisle because all I see is the interior of the airplane, and I know I'm in an airplane, and I don't like it. I want to look at the clouds. Somehow looking outside makes me feel more comfortable. So window seat for Carol. Window seat. And the pilots will tell you if you sit towards the front of the plane, it's a smoother ride. So if you've been sitting in the back all these years, move up uh, because you'll get a a better ride. Number two is don't let the turbulence frighten you. And they keep saying this. But supposedly, (laughs) according to the experts, you know, it's just a change in the air. It's super common. And a former military pilot says, you know, that modern planes are designed to withstand far more force than any turbulence can create. That doesn't mean that you can't get caught, in, you know, in one of those down drafts. Oh, uh, ladies but, and gentlemen, sorry about the clear air turbulence. We're yeah. dropping down to 4,000 feet and everything will be smooth. But they're saying, you know, it's uh, that you can't over overpower a 90,000-pound aircraft. So if that doesn't work, if you really don't believe the turbulence, just do what I do and think, well, no one is shooting at us. Because that's what I do. I'm not in World War II. There's no shrapnel. Nobody's trying to knock us out of the sky. So that personally helps me. That's not in this, this particular article. <laughs> that's under three, reprogramming your mind for irrational fears. <laughs> so maybe it is. Um, number four is have relaxation remedies on hand. And they are not talking about alcohol, alcohol and caffeine. <laughs> Um, they are talking about medications. You can't get a prescription if you are a highly anxious flyer. That's why God made Valium. That is why God. So you can talk to your physician. Actually, alcohol can make you feel more anxious, according to this article. (laughs) And what's been your experience? (laughs) I don't know. know, I'm just saying a vodka cranberry is not so bad. Bring distractions with you. Absolutely, you've got to have movies 
And if you're a lot of the other airlines do have access to movies, um, so you can at least you know pay for them. But if you can bring them with you on your iPad or on your phone, that's fabulous. And last is don't forget to breathe. Not when the oxygen mask pa- falls down all the time. The entire flight, you need to breathe. Well, yoga teaches you that. Well, that's it. So deep breaths before, during, after the flight. If you're in, you know, and good luck to you if you you're anxious uh, in. Do get the window seat. There's a lot of pretty clouds out there. She's Carol Zerniel. I'm Ron Aaron. If you've just joined us, this is Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM. The Answer. We'll talk in just a couple of moments with neurologist Dr. Daniel Potts about his work bringing art and therapy to Alzheimer's patients, opening up their world to the creative side. Managing, starting with caregivers, care recipients. What does that mean? Well, this was something that came off of NPR um, that is a technique the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor developed. It's a, it's a behavioral approach. So the story is a woman's husband starts spending all their money. He's angry all the time. He doesn't care about the family relationships. And I have a feeling you know what disease he has. FTD. FTD, you got it right the first time. Frontotemporal dementia, which is a type of dementia that strikes middle-aged people and can cause very sad, erratic yes, uh, behavior. Um, and the the problem is, is that the Medications don't work really well with dementia. If you think about the medications that we take, antidepressants, anti-anxiety, they're really trying to deal with behaviors and moods. And so what the University of Michigan says is start with the behaviors and find the triggers to them. Manage those, learn to deal with those, and you're going to find that you don't need the medications that really don't work anyway. So what sets him off? Yeah, so what sets them off? Um, you know, if somebody uh, particularly, um, if they, if they, it's routine, like my mother would get angry when she was hungry. And so when she oh. started, you know, and she had Alzheimer's, when she started, you know, really getting mad uh, and her face would just at literally turn dark and cloudy. <laughs> You would feed her because that was she was hungry. It's like the Snickers ad. It was, you know, she really was. She was really the little the little monster. Um, but it, it does involve some sleuthing, uh, and it can be bigger things. I think I've told the story about my mother in law who had Alzheimer's, who told us that she was going to have um, thirty seven babies, and it turned out that she had gallstones. Wow. Uh, and so, you know, where the family was laughing and saying, ha, 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 look all the diapers you bought and the play school toys and all of this stuff, you know, nobody really thought, why is she doing this? This is years ago before I certainly got in the field, and I haven't forgotten that. Um, but training family caregivers to spot the triggers and problem solves around them, you know, you can get creative, uh, and then you can plan in advance to kind of address. It really helps you adapt what you do as the behaviors change because you know particularly with dementia behavior that you know as disease progresses the behaviors will change and you'll trade one set of interesting behaviors possibly for another set so intuitively your mother-in-law knew she had gallstones well she knew something was wrong interesting and so she was really trying to um trying to communicate that and she just couldn't so she knew something was going on you know inside and that's what she figured that it was uh and and so this story you know talks about that as well when something is really off and very specific like that you have to ask why um but you know the 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 rest of this story 
talked about how the caregiver felt so guilty originally because she couldn't deal with all of these problem behaviors uh, and learning to manage them and understand, um, you know, how to have her husband do, especially this, you know, the lady who her husband was spending all the money. Obviously, she needed some legal advice and she needed to make sure he couldn't handle the finances. Um, But learning that she could engage him in other activities that he did enjoy that were not as harmful as spending all of their money, um, you know, and, and helping actually to get somebody to to help her understand her own anxiety and guilt. You know, the caregiving is so difficult, but I really like this behavioral approach, thinking about what is it that triggers a behavior. Uh, it can be something as simple That's as cool. too much clutter on the counter, too many choices, talking too fast, pushing too hard to get something done, uh, and you have a negative result. Whereas if you really allow for time, make two choices, limit the number of stuff that you've got around. That's cool. There there are things that you can do. Change the environment, change the person. Dr. Potts is up in just a moment. I want to congratulate our technical director, Roland Ruiz, who has been named the AT&T Center announcer for the San Antonio Spurs. And so what's he going to say? Two minutes, Spurs ball. All right. Roland, congratulations. This is Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Ron Aaron with Carol Zerniel. Up next, Dr. Potts. WellMed isn't your ordinary medical group. In fact, 9 out of 10 WellMed patients would recommend WellMed to friends and family. That's what WellMed patients in Texas and Florida said in a 2017 Press Ganey survey. Maybe we rate so highly because we have a better approach to health. WellMed doctors specialize in keeping people on Medicare healthy. We help you feel your best so you can live your best life. Maybe it's because we give you an entire medical team dedicated to looking out for you. Maybe it's the way we treat you with respect, spend extra time with you, or how we really listen. The Medicare annual enrollment period is October 15th to December 7th. Get the care you deserve. Pick a plan that opens the door to WellMed. Discover the WellMed difference at wellmedfindadoctor.com. That's wellmedfindadoctor.com. Well, we told you he'd be with us, and he is there, Dr. Daniel C. Potts. Founder of Cognitive Dynamics, I'm Ron Aaron with Carol Zerniel on Caregiver SOS On Air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer, Dr. Potts is the founder and president of Cognitive Dynamics Foundation. He serves as medical director at Dementia Dynamics through those two institutions. He channels inspiration and hope gained through caring for his father, Lester, who became an acclaimed watercolor artist in the throes of Alzheimer's disease. Dr. Potts also is a lyricist for nationally known composers, published seven books of photographs and poetry. Obviously, the man is just too talented. I was going to say, underachiever, welcome to the show, Dr. Potts. Thank you both so much for having me on and for that introduction. I don't deserve those comments, but uh, thank you anyway. <laughs> well, we're delighted to have you on. And share with us first your experience as a, a caregiver for your dad. Yes, I, I will. Ron, I, I was a secondary caregiver for, for my dad. My mother was, of course, the, the primary caregiver. Uh, I, an only child, uh, and also a neurologist, so I found myself in, a, in an interesting and challenging situation. 
um, and I, I most of the time didn't feel up to the task. I'll just I'll just tell you. Um, so it was a it was a learning experience for me, but I do think that I I learned a lot through that experience that I can I can now bring into my practice and help other people. Well, now is that for a neurologist to have someone you know your father, uh, someone close to you come down with Alzheimer's, develop Alzheimer's? Uh, did you see it coming first, or is it in the case you don't really want to see it coming? Well, I will tell you, and, and this has been a source of a lot of my growth and actually a lot of my feelings of guilt, um, I, I didn't see it coming, um, and I think a lot of that, looking back on it, was denial. Just like you said, you don't want to see it coming. Um, I, I, I saw some signs that I should have known were pointing in that direction, but I, I attributed it to something else, um, a surgery that Dad had had, a move, retirement, some life changes, et cetera. So, you know, I, I, I think I was in denial like, like most, most care, caregivers are. Well, and, and I, uh, I think that you are definitely not alone. I think a lot of us that work in the field, you know, are, are looking for something else. And, and, and even those that aren't in the field, that's not uncommon. And it's actually probably a little comforting to know that, you know, we're all human uh, and we're all really hoping for the best and hoping that that's not going to be the diagnosis. You know, hindsight being twenty twenty, share with us what those signs were that uh, you might have jumped on as a concern about dementia developing in your dad. Absolutely. One of the earliest things was, was a personality change that, that happened uh, even before the short-term memory problems started creeping in. For instance, um, dad was a very even-keeled, gentle, kind soul and rarely got upset about anything. And... Um, there was an incident where um, there was a tree in the churchyard that needed to be cut down because it was it was it was dying, losing limbs, and that sort of thing. And Dad loved that tree, but he had rotated off of the leadership board of the church, and the tree was cut down as it should have been, and it made Dad angry. And so he went and um, complained to a lot of the church leaders about that. And th- this, looking back on it, was very unusual for Dad and uncharacteristic. And so this this was an early sign that was then followed by um, fender benders, um, uh, short term memory loss, and the way that manifests, and then and then eventually some language issues, some some trouble coming up with words and that sort of thing. But looking back, I think the personality problem was the very first thing. Well, that's interesting. So you know, and your dad, it says became. I'm looking at some notes we were looking at before the show. Said became an acclaimed watercolor artist in the throes of Alzheimer's disease. Does that mean he wasn't a watercolor artist before he had Alzheimer's? I'll put it this way, Carol. After after Dad began painting, um, a lot of the people who knew Dad early on in life would say. Now wait, we must be talking about two different people. This couldn't be the Lester Potts I know. So, so Dad had no known talent for art prior to the to the diagnosis of Alzheimer's, and he went to a to an adult daycare center uh, after he sort of began to to be too hard to handle at home all the time. And they had an art and music program there, and Dad worked with a, with an artist that was volunteering there, and lo and behold, began to paint these beautiful watercolors. He brought one home. Mother, it was a little hummingbird. Mother asked him. Les, where'd you get that? Oh, I did that. He was so proud of himself. And Mother said, "What well, did, did honey? Did you trace it?" 
uh, knowing that he couldn't do anything like that. Well, turns out he could, and this talent was buried, and it came out in the throes of Alzheimer's. Just amazing. Now, as a neurologist, why do you think that happened? Well, I think several things. Of course, of course, I'm sure he had the talent all the time. It was just, it was just latent, and and I think that sort of the the changes that were happening to Dad's brain that made it more difficult for him to speak and more difficult for him to use language as a form of communication and to relate and tell his story, I think that that was bypassed by the art. I think that it gave him a means of expression that he so desperately was seeking in the midst of Alzheimer's disease. And I also think he was he was disinhibited. So I think the, 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 the frontal, the front parts of the brain, the frontal, frontal regions, frontal lobe, was not working as well, and so that part of the brain typically inhibits a lot of the drives that we have, you know, and so as that was dying off, he was sort of disinhibited, so maybe he would have, he, he would have, he would have never done this before, he would have not let himself do it, but this disinhibition enabled it. Now, if you just joined us, we're talking with Dr. Daniel C. Potts. He's founder of Cognitive Dynamics, and we're going to find out about that as well. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-hosts, Carol Zerniel, and you hear us on 930 AM, The Answer, Caregiver SOS On Air. And Dr. Potts, what is Cognitive Dynamics? Well, after Dad's story, so we, we were so impressed by what art and creativity did for my dad and how it sort of changed his life and our, all of our lives. So after dad passed on, using dad's stories and inspiration, we wanted to give back and pay it forward. So we started a, a nonprofit foundation, Cognitive Dynamics, and the mission of that organization is to, is to help people like dad, so, so to bring the arts and creativity to people living with dementia and thereby improve quality of life and help their caregivers. So that's kind of why we formed it. Well, now this is you know, this is something people are just now starting to recognize that that creative side of the brain, uh, when someone loses their logical executive functioning, um, can be a really powerful force. So, you know what what do you do to help others tap into their the creative side and, and help other folks that have memory loss? Well, Carol, we have a a primary program that's called Bringing Art to Life. And bringing art to life pairs students, either high school students or, or college undergraduates, with people living with dementia. And we, we teach the students about dementia, about art, music, and other expressive arts therapies, about mindfulness and other sorts of things. And then we pair them with their participants. And we have art therapy weekly. And so we all as a group have art therapy under the direction of an art therapist. And during that time, we, we create together, and most importantly, the students get to know the people who are living with dementia and become their friends. So the relationships develop, the stories come out, we preserve those stories in, in literally digital and book form, and we honor these individuals who have lived these rich lives but, but have a problem telling us about that now. Because, and so the art taps into those early memories, and so a lot of the the elements of their personhood come out through the creativity, and then the stories begin to come out with these connections that are firing up again. Right. I, I'm thinking of um, a 
facility that I visited uh, years ago when I first started working with the Wellmed Charitable Foundation, and it was an adult daycare facility, and there was a picture on the wall that they had recently hung from a, a gentleman who did have Alzheimer's, and the family did not know, you know, he didn't remember them, he didn't remember their names, he didn't really seem to recall much of anything that meant anything to them, and yet he painted a picture of a cabin on a lake that they went to every summer when wow. the kids were young. And he hadn't talked about that camp, and they hadn't visited it for years, but it was in there, and he painted it perfectly in this painting yeah. that they hung on the wall. And there wasn't a dry eye in the place when he produced this painting. The stories abound, and I will tell you one particularly short one, but it's very powerful. My dad had a friend, Albert who was his sawmilling partner for many, many years ago. They used to work together. They knew each other all their lives. And late in Dad's life, he brought home a painting of two men, an African-American man and a Caucasian man, pulling a cross-cut saw together. We all knew that that was Mr. Albert and Dad. The Dad couldn't tell us that. So I asked him, I said, Dad, is this you and Albert? And Dad put his hand over Albert and started crying. Wow. We knew that's who it was. The relationship persisted in that man's mind. Yeah. Well, and and that's such a wonderful uh piece to it brings the people back. Um and even if it's for something that may or may not have existed in reality, it still um you know engages the person and it helps to, you know, them to to connect with life around them. It does. And you know, the loss of relationships is such a is such a, a, a negative side effect of these dementias, and this enables relationship. It gives you something to build on, so that you can feel like you're there with the person that you love. Well, we're going to take a short break, but when we come back, um, you've got several book titles, Treasure for Alzheimer's, Finding Joy in Alzheimer's, um, and those are not typical titles for books that deal with Alzheimer's. So let's find out a little bit about that. Stick with us. You're listening to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron with Carol Zernil, and our very special guest is Dr. Daniel Potts, founder of Cognitive Dynamics, and we're hearing some fabulous stories. We are learning a lot of stuff about art and Alzheimer's and a whole lot more with Dr. Daniel C. Potts, founder of Cognitive Dynamics. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel, on Caregiver SOS On Air. And Dr. Potts, I'm just curious, if what happened to your dad had not happened to your dad, would you be doing what you're doing? You know, Ron, I don't think I would. Um, it, it's, it's amazing. I mean, I, I, I knew a little bit about Alzheimer's and other dementias, of course, because I had neurologic training, but I didn't know that the inspiration to be a care partner with somebody can actually come from the person living with the disease. And that's what my dad taught me. It was in there, and we just needed to, we didn't know how to tap it. And so, no, I, I don't think I'd be doing what I'm doing now without that. Well, talk a little bit about these books, Treasure for Alzheimer's that you wrote with Dr. Richard Morgan and Finding Joy in Alzheimer's with Dr. Marie Marley. Um, Treasure, joy, Alzheimer's, are these really (laughs) words that go together? Well, I learned that they can go together. And and as I talk about this, I I don't want to minimize the impact and the the suffering and, and all of that that goes into this. But but I will say, let me, let me talk about treasure first. So 
after we had Dad's portfolio of art and and we saw this this beautiful art come out of him, I was contacted by Dr. Richard Morgan, who's a retired Presbyterian minister in Pennsylvania. And Dr. Morgan said, can you give me or send me a portfolio of your dad's art? He said, I would love to take this around and visit people living with the disease to see if I can interact with them. So he himself, in his upper 80s, now living in the assisted living facility, took dad's portfolio around and interacted with people living with, in some cases, late-stage dementia, and they woke up. Many of them had not communicated in weeks, and looking at dad's paintings, this sparked memories. They began to talk. Dr. Morgan interacted with them. And Treasure for Alzheimer's is, is a compilation of his experiences with these people as he showed them Dad's art. It's a, beautiful, it's a beautiful book. Did the reaction of those folks surprise you? You know, it didn't surprise me after what I've seen. Um, so, so I have to say, no, it didn't. Well, talk about finding joy in Alzheimer's. So Dr. Marie Marley um, is, is a well-known um, blogger and writer about, about caregiving and, and blogs for the Huffington Post and has several other books as well. And Marie contacted me a few years ago and said, I'm interested in writing a book, and I want it to be a positive book, a hopeful book, and um, I want it to have to do with joy and finding joy that, that can, can occur. As I said, you know, I'd love to do this. And, of course, Dad's story she had heard. So Marie and I went into this wanting it to make it wanting to make this a story rich book so we talked about our own experiences in which joy has surfaced uh, amidst the uh, the dark in the dark places and um it's it's really a compilation of those stories but also we talk a little bit about how to create an environment in which that kind of thing can happen and we I'll tell you we've taken some hits for this for this book title <laughs> you know I mean it's it's it, it, it's kind of shocking to 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 see a title like that but what we want to tell you is that there is hope joy can manifest itself even in the dark days and we have to hang on to those experiences and those moments so that it'll buoy us up through the caregiving journey now last week we had on as a guest a woman out in Los Angeles who was a stand-up comic for years, taught comedy at UCLA, founded a company called Laughter on Call in which she has comedians trained in humor and seniors who visit and do one-on-one shows with folks with Alzheimer's. And she talked about the incredible connection that bringing joy and laughter to these patients uh, uh, can generate. I'm a huge believer. One of the one of the things that lit Dad up even late into the disease was DVD reruns of the Carol Burnett Show. I mean, Dad would have this blank stare on his face. This was after he was unable to paint, and you'd show him these Carol Burnett videos, and he would laugh until he cried. and And this again gives a moment of connection with care partners and families who can laugh with Papa again. I mean, how precious is that to be able to do? It's like a moment of connection. Pets can do it. Children can do it. Art can do it. Music, all of these things are important. Now, where in the brain are all those memories? Because uh, there's no question, and it's a growing trend, uh, to connect Alzheimer patients with music of their youth. Right. Well, there are different parts of the brain you know, that are spread out, and, and they're so interconnected with experiences, uh, with other sensory inputs, with smells. 
you know, a friend of mine can smell a certain smell, and he's back in his grandmother's house with biscuits cooking and all that sort of thing. And so, so music is richly connected, and, and art is too, in many, many different parts of the brain. This is one of the reasons that it's so beneficial uh, for, uh, for people living with this disease. So you serve on a number of task force and boards um, in Alabama. Uh, you know, you you blog about Alzheimer's. So when you when you look at the future with so many more people that will get Alzheimer's unless we find some sort of a treatment, um, what is your hope? You know, what do you want to see different about the services that are offered and the care that we provide to folks who are suffering? Well, obviously, first of all, I wish we didn't have to deal with these diseases, and we need to support research for cures and effective treatments and clinical trials. We need to enroll people in clinical trials and educate people about prevention. So there's that huge piece. But paired with that, we need to um, allocate the resources necessary to help people live well with the diagnosis and to help their caregivers live well also. And I hope you know, caregiving can do two things. It can bring out your worst and bring out your best. I hope that it will bring out our best as human beings and as a society so that we will rise to the occasion, lifting the banner of hope, and say, you know what, I'm going to get out of myself here, and I'm going to get in the world of somebody else and have empathy for this person because I, I need to put myself there and see what would I need when I'm in that, that situation. But we need to honor personhood. Uh, because it doesn't die, it doesn't go away, it's still there. So those two important things, I think. Well, you know, it's a it's an interesting for some of us that have worked in the aging services for a long, long time, um, how things are changing where now we engage more with a person with Alzheimer's and let them speak with their own voice, even yeah. if it, their recall is not perfect. Uh, and, and then... Uh, bringing out this creative side uh, and and really trying to hold on to the person that they always were and they still are inside, um, even as the disease takes away the obvious signs of the person that we knew. Yes, that's a, that's a high calling to, to, to do that. But I think we owe it to them to do that. And, 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 it, and it, we have to have this same view a broader view of people with disabilities in general. I think that the, the stigma is so, so high for this. And all it takes to destigmatize is to see somebody like my dad or Glenn Campbell or somebody like that to exert their personhood in such a powerful way and say, look, ah, why did I write him off? He's right. still there. This is enriching for our whole society. That's right. So it's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's very powerful. Well, your high school students that are doing the art with the, with the persons that have the Alzheimer's, um, have you been doing this long enough to know if any of them have had a, a career change, aspirational change, after working with people with Alzheimer's? So um, we've done it with, with college students for about eight years, and we know with the college students that it improves measures of empathy, and we've, we've presented several times at various meetings about this. It improves measures of empathy. It uh, makes them uh, have less stigma of aging and makes them uh, more likely to want to interact with people with dementia. And in high school students, which we've just done a pylon on in Chicago, 
uh, with some high school students there. We know that it makes them want to go into careers uh, in which they'll be interacting with elderly people and with, uh, with, with the, in a healthcare environment. So we know those things. So, and it, it, we hope it, we hope it changes uh, the course of things. And we hope, we need people going into this field, as you know. And so maybe this will, maybe this will help. Well, maybe we're going to invite you to a medical school to have the <laughs> medical school students do art with people with Alzheimer's. Um, you, you know, there's a lot more empathy, I think, that's needed uh, in the medical schools, as well as introduction to positive sides of, of aging, even difficult aging. Clearly, we can get them whenever we can. You know, high school, the earlier the better, but we need to be working with all of them, I think. Now, as you think about uh, your dad's experience and when he began painting, uh, was it something that he knew he was doing, something he enjoyed doing? Was he aware of that part? Yes, um, though I wasn't with him a lot of the time when he was creating the art, um, I am told that he enjoyed it, uh, he was focused, he seemed to be in a state of flow while he was creating, so he was able to do this for, for quite a long period of time and remain engaged with it. And so I think it provided him enjoyment when he did this. And how long was he able to, to produce the art? How many, Was it a year or a couple it, of years? Probably about three years, three and years. so he didn't start the art until he was in early mid stage Alzheimer's, and he painted really until late. He painted the, uh, he, although the art was rudimentary, uh, it was still expressive up until you know the last year of his life. And if you go to the internet, uh, some of his paintings are for sale. That's right. We have a we have a website, Lester'sLegacy.com, and that um, has uh, about seventy five or six of Dad's. Uh, prints that we offer for sale, as well as some note cards uh, with his art. Well, he was pretty prolific. You said 75 uh, different works. Absolutely. Yeah, and he painted more than that. And occasionally we'll discover one that we didn't know existed. And that that's like Dad coming back to visit us that day, you know. Where do you find them? Well, um, some, some, of the, some of Dad's art was actually sold by Caring Days as part of their art program before we really knew Dad had a knack for it. So occasionally someone will bring us one, uh, or, or Vicki Kerr, who is the director of Caring Days, will find one uh, in storage down there from some of their previous art shows. And what an exciting day that is. We, we see a facet of Dad that we, we didn't know existed on those days. As you take a look at uh, how far we've come, as Carol mentioned, in uh, working with and understanding and interacting with folks with Alzheimer's, uh, are we at a point now where uh, legislators understand that, members of Congress understand that, and understand we need to put more money into this? I think we're way ahead of where we are. And, of course, recently, you know, we've had, we've had a, uh, an increase in NIH funding allocated to Alzheimer's. We've looked back at, to 2015 to now. We've gone from $500 million a year to $2.3 billion a year, and we're really getting there. And I, I think a lot of people, it's being brought out of the shadows. I think a lot of uh, members of Congress, uh, senators and, and politicians, have family members that have this, and it, they've been touched by it, but there's such a stigma associated with it. But I think that, that the more stories we have like this and others, uh, I think that uh, it's going to be brought out and, and people start talking about it. And, and as you know, once we start bringing it out in the conversations and the public starts talking about this, uh, then begin, things begin to change. We've got about a minute left. Is there anything we haven't asked you that you'd like to share with us? Well, I'd like to know if people want to get in touch with Cognitive Dynamics Foundation, look at any of the artwork from your father, where do they go? 
So uh, we have a website, www.cognitivedynamics.org. And if you go there, we have an email and a way to contact us on that site. In addition, we have a YouTube channel, uh, Cognitive Dynamics 1, the numeral 1, so just with no spaces, Cognitive Dynamics 1, which has uh, lots of videos about what we do, um, our Bringing Art to Life program, etc. And uh, we'd, we'd love for you to visit there. And that, that tells you a good story about what we're up to. And the website that uh, offers your dad's paintings? lesterslegacy.com and that's uh, with no spaces lesterslegacy.com and i suppose right. the books are, are available on amazon there are they are they're all on amazon and there are links to them also on our website but uh, yes amazon has got them well there you go Perfect. lots lots to find well thank you that's so right. much dr potts this has been incredibly educational we appreciate you coming on and thanks for the work you're doing well, my dear pleasure to be on, and thanks for what you all do as well. You take care. Thank you. Dr. Thank Daniel you. Potts, founder of Cognitive Dynamics. I'm Ron Aaron with Carol Zerniel. Up next, Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman on Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer. WellMed isn't your ordinary medical group. In fact, 9 out of 10 WellMed patients would recommend WellMed to friends and family. That's what WellMed patients in Texas and Florida said in a 2017 Press Ganey survey. Maybe we rate so highly because we have a better approach to health. WellMed doctors specialize in keeping people on Medicare healthy. We help you feel your best so you can live your best life. Maybe it's because we give you an entire medical team dedicated to looking out for you. Maybe it's the way we treat you with respect, spend extra time with you, or how we really listen. The Medicare annual enrollment period is October 15th to December 7th. Get the care you deserve. Pick a plan that opens the door to WellMed. Discover the WellMed difference at wellmedfindadoctor.com. That's wellmedfindadoctor.com. Thank you so much for sticking with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. We take up Take 10, which follows each of our programs. Dr. Jamie Heisman joins us on our Caregiver SOS On Air hotline. He is a nationally known psychotherapist, an expert on addictions and caregiving. Carol Zerniel, our co-host, is here, and I'm Ron Aaron. And, Carol, you've got another great topic for Take 10. Well, I was listening to someone who was a therapist, and they said that Whenever a caregiver was out of control, really just distraught and, and uh, in a very bad place, they would ask the person, when's the last time you got a good night's sleep? So, Jamie, talk a little bit about, you know, w- sleep. Is it important? What does it do to us physically, psychologically, if we're not getting sleep and we're trying to carry the big caregiver ball? Well, Last week we covered take your oxygen first. There was nothing, nothing more important in terms of us writing about the self-care of caregivers than sleep, Carol. Sleep is literally, uh, adequate sleep, I should say, is literally the essence of restoring our body. Uh, if you're going through a multitude of, of chronic issues or, or, or different sort of uh, conditions, none of them can really be addressed until you are able to address adequate sleep, which is usually about seven to eight hours a night, there's little chance that the body will have restorative powers and appetite, people's depression and anxiety, and 
even traffic accidents are, are a result of, of not having adequate sleep. And caregivers, caregivers are really the, the most uh, prominent population I know that deals with sleep deprivation. Well, when, you know, we had small children there, or when you first have a baby, people will say, sleep while the baby sleeps, which I found to be the best advice I ever yeah, got. Yeah, we got that same advice, too. Yeah, and, and so sleep while your loved one sleeps um, for the caregiver, but a lot of caregivers will say, that's when I need to do the dishes, that's when I need to catch up on this and that. So what do we, do we sleep when our loved one is sleeping, or do we do all the 10,000 things that are on our to-do list? Well, that's fascinating to ask. I think you do need to balance your life. I mean, let's face it, um, getting sleep is is critical, but our loved one is not a child, for sure. And then certainly with a lot of chronic conditions, there's always episodic times when when our loved one is up and our loved one is down. And so it's extremely difficult. I think you do need a quarterback and plan ahead and make sure that you have, uh, at least when you do sleep, a very comfortable sleep-inducing environment so that you're actually practicing patterns of, of, of your life before you go to sleep uh, that allows you to at least find restorative sleep when you can. I've heard uh, statistics around caregiving that literally 60 to 70% up to uh, that amount of caregivers suffer from some form of insomnia. And whether that comes from uh, dealing with their loved one and their loved one's chronic illness or it simply comes from their own anxiety and fear, it doesn't matter. Poor sleep is poor sleep. Well, what would be a sign, again, if, if that you're not getting enough sleep? If you're a caregiver and you're not sure, you know, you're getting sleep when you can, how do you know you're in trouble sleep-wise? Short-tempered. Yeah, there you go, Ron. How, about say, that? how did Ron know that so quickly? And go with that feeling, <laughs> with the, Ron. Three, three children later, Ron sleep knows. Sleep you. <laughs> What's yeah. that, Jamie? What is what is short tempered when you get lack of sleep? How do you feel about it? Well, you end up snapping at the ones that uh, you care the most about, or uh, responding inappropriately to a question or a request or an action uh, on the part of uh, hypothetically, you have five year old twin boys and a seven year old little girl. <laughs> so, so if you hypothetically had three children, you might know something about sleep deprivation. And when they wake up at two in the morning because the seven year old went in and woke the boys and said, "Let's have a party." At 2 in the morning. Yes. So caregiving, it, it is the exact way Ron described, Carol. I mean, literally, our awakening frequently throughout the night, for whatever reasons, creates this very much short-tempered sort of person because uh, we're worrying about issues. And, and we don't have that sort of rest that we desperately need where this fear and anxiety dissipates. So when you're worried about loved one's health or you're worried about finances or your nutrition is that inadequate, um, literally, these are all things that, that stem from a lack of sleep. And many people will use, you know, uh, medications, and then they get caught in this chronic sort of cycle of using medications until it creates a dependency. So my first thing would be to go to a good neurologist, go to a sleep specialist, and find out really how to go to sleep when you can, how to make it the most restorative possible. Now, if you just joined us, you're listening to Take 10 on Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host Carol Zerniel is here, and Dr. Jamie Heisman, psychotherapist, joins us as well on our Caregiver SOS on air hotline. Well, so um, if sleep is so important, we talk about those investments that you make in caregiving that are, you know, will pay back uh, double. 
And one of those we talk about is a geriatric care manager. The other one might be having someone come and stay with your loved one so you can sleep. I have known of caregivers who didn't have a lot of money, but they did pay for someone to come maybe two or three nights a week during the night just in case their loved one awoke so that they could relax and really sleep. I think that's a great idea, Carol. And I think we do need to make it part of our routine. So if it's two or three nights, that's great. But if we have a large extended family or, or you know, friends, if you will, that can get engaged, you know, make it part of a routine. There's nothing that's more inspiring to get restorative sleep than to create a routine, like going to bed at the same time every night, try to get up, you know, at the same time, don't use the stimulants or caffeine, et cetera, before. These are all like, like no-brainers, but... The, the important thing is to, to keep a, a, a routine around you because caregiving is so episodic. And so what you said is great. It's almost creating a team that helps you sleep better. Well, and part of getting enough sleep might be looking at the, the problem sleep of the person you're caring for. So with Alzheimer's sundowning, I know my mother um, around 11 o'clock at night was just into everything in the house. I don't know what she was looking for, but she would just start digging in drawers and looking around of, on tops of you know the dresser and pulling things off. And sundowning means sundowning, you know, that uh, behavior, the wandering that happens, you know, not not necessarily when the sun goes down, but in, in oftentimes like 10, 11 o'clock at night, midnight. Uh, so what do you recommend in terms of creating a good sleep environment for the care recipient and the caregiver? How do you is there a do you do things together, a, a routine together of getting ready for bed? So you're triggering, you know, time sleep time. Well, I always believe that we are the corrective experience for the person in front of us. So if there's caregivers listening here, this is a great thing to start with yourself. Again, create that routine. And just what you said, yes, there's a lot to do. Obviously, you don't want to look at monitors or television. You know, 30 to 45 minutes, they say, beforehand. Uh, You want to create the ambiance, if you will, of of a darker environment. there are actually glasses out there. In fact, I, I have a pair of them because I have sleep challenges as well, which knocks the, the rays out uh, and, and creates a much more ambient environment. You really cannot treat sleep as, as a luxury, Carol. I mean, for caregivers, it's a restorative function. It's a medicine that makes us healthier. So when, we're, when we do that, that's a corrective experience for our loved one we're taking care of. When they can see that that's what, how we're tending to this issue of sleep, they, too, see that they can do it as well. Tell me about your glasses. What do they do? Actually, they're yellow glasses. I, I wear them before I go to bed, at least two hours before I go to bed, so that, you know, these lights from our monitors, our phones, and from television uh, aren't so uh, stark. They're not so uh, abrupt. And so I, I usually wear them two hours before I go to sleep. And you could just Google you can, sunglasses uh, for sleep. Hmm. And that and gets rid of those ex- blue, the blue rays. What there. is it? It's a blue light that comes from all of our monitors, our phones, and everything that interrupts our uh, the rhythm in our head, the circadian rhythm in our head. Absolutely. And so, in addition to that, though, and I don't want this segment to go without saying that this is also a great time again. I know you get tired and things of getting a therapist because a lot that keeps us awake at night is the anxieties, the anxieties of, of finances, the anxieties of joblessness, the anxieties, the anxieties of our loved one going through what they're going through. 
So having a, a place to go, a place to talk to somebody, whether it's a therapist or a support group, lessens that anxiety, as well as yoga. And yoga before you go to night is called yoga nidra for sleep. That too is it because, again, breathing is so critical. Got to stop you right there, flat out of time. Uh, a lot of uh, providers call it sleep hygiene, trying to keep that bedroom yes, pure and simple. Dr. Jamie, thank you. Yes. Appreciate it. Take 10. Carol Zernio. I'm Ron Aaron. Remember, you can hear our shows on podcast. Just Google Caregiver SOS on air and the shows will pop up. Thanks for joining us on 930 AM, The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer.